Hello and welcome to the Alan Onofre podcast. This is the first of a series of discussions examining the impact of the General Data Protection Regulation. With the GDPR coming into effect on the 25th of May, we're going to look from a practical point of view at what organisations should be doing to prepare at this fairly late stage. We will also discuss what a good privacy programme looks like, how to set priorities and the impact of enforcement. My name is Charlotte Malarkey and I'm a PSL counsel in Alan and Overy's data protection team. Joining me today are Jane Finlayson-Brown, who is a partner in our London office and a leading data protection lawyer, and Nigel Parker, also a partner in our London team, who, like Jane, has been at the forefront of advising clients on how best to get to grips with the requirements of the GDPR. I'm also delighted to have David Smith with us today. David, who is a special advisor to Alan and Overy, was previously the Deputy Commissioner at the UK Information Commissioner's Office in charge of data protection. In that role, David signed off the fines imposed by the ICO and was a member of the Article 29 Working Party. David will share with us the approach likely to be taken by the regulator. So let's turn to our first question. Lots of clients asking, what if I'm not ready by the 25th of May? There's lots to do and organisations are at different stages of moving towards compliance. If I may start with you first, Jane, what would your advice be to companies who are worrying that they won't be ready by midnight on the 24th of May? Well, first of all, I would say don't panic. You're absolutely not alone. Um, Many people are struggling with finishing their programmes or even finishing the material parts of their programmes. Um, And I don't think being absolutely 100% compliant with all aspects is really practicable or possible. So I would be prioritising those elements. And in prioritising, I'd be bearing in mind um, something that I heard Steve Wood from the ICO, the Information Commissioner in the UK, saying quite recently, um, which is that they see GDPR very much as evolution rather than revolution. So I think the thing I would be looking at are areas in which um, I was aware that that the company I worked for was not 100% compliant with the directive and really focusing on the the more major gaps because the same will obviously exist under the GDPR on this sort of evolution type approach of looking at how the law is changing. And in focusing those, I would further apply another filter, which is to look at those areas which are really of substantial risk to data subjects, rather than matters of technical compliance. And David, do you think that this approach that Jane has outlined accords with the approach taken by regulators? Yes, I think that's entirely consistent with what, you know, amongst others, the UK Commissioner Elizabeth Denham has said about this, uh, because she said she doesn't expect 100% compliance by the 25th of May. What she does expect is that businesses will have a, a programme leading towards compliance in place, and in line with the accountability requirements in the GDPR, you know, they can show that it's in place, and they can demonstrate that it's effective, and they can explain why their priorities are if, if they're challenged on that. So it it comes around to to taking a uh, risk-based approach to to privacy. Uh, And and this is, as Jane has said, this is evolution, not revolution. So those risks, and it's the risks to individuals that the regulator's interested in, don't change 
completely overnight on the 24th of May. You know, many of the same risks are there. The key risk probably still will be around data breaches, uh, where individuals, you know, identity information, credit card details are compromised, where a light is cast on an organization's practices because they have a breach which shows what they're doing. And Nigel, David's given us some great examples there of areas which um, might particularly need to be prioritised. Can you give me some other examples where companies might be looking to prioritise the risks? Yes, yeah, certainly. First of all, I guess it's important to say that this does vary from organisation to organisation what the priorities are. There's uh, a number of different ways you can go about it. You might, for example look at the previous experience of the organization, where its risks have existed in the past, what have people complained about in the past, um, have, has the company been subject of a regulatory action in the past, those are clearly going to be areas to focus on. You could look also at what the working party has said, the, the, the guidance that's coming out about what they think the high risks are and where, where companies should be prioritizing. Um, or you could look at other data, look at some of the statistics that are published by the ICO and other authorities about where their enforcement actions are targeted. Putting those things together, I think the, the things I would be prioritizing are data security uh, and the company's ability to manage security incidents. That's clearly going to continue to be a regulator priority and a key source of risk. Direct marketing, um, so now straying slightly beyond GDPR to e-privacy, but that's one of the top areas that individuals complain about and that can lead to lead to distress. Uh, and also thinking about individual rights. Uh, where a company receives lots of requests from individuals to exercise their rights, whether it be access rights or, or otherwise, that's a, a key area where individuals can get frustrated if they don't feel they're being treated fairly. So that would be a, a key area of focus in, in a proportionate way because I think at the same time it's not appropriate for organisations to start building complex processes and systems for handling requests where they're likely to be received in, in low volumes in future. Yeah, and we've talked a lot about the UK, but even the French Data Protection Authority, the CNIL, uh, which isn't known for giving much leeway to, to data controllers, has said that it doesn't expect perfect compliance and it's going to have some sort of lead-in period. So we can all take some comfort from that. So, Nigel, once you've addressed these priorities and looked at the really high-risk areas uh, immediately, how do you mature this model, sort of moving from having sticking plasters to get the key things done um, bearing in mind budget and uh, resource constraints. And what, what do you think a good privacy programme looks like as it matures? This is, I think, a really fascinating area and one where everyone's level of understanding is increasing rapidly. Uh, a good privacy programme, most people now define as one that is well embedded within the business. And for me, that means it's not just a set of policies that sit on a shelf that no one actively consults in practice. So it's about having a set of controls in place within the organization that are understandable by non-privacy specialists, are implementable by non-privacy specialists, which might mean someone being able to write their own privacy notice or uh, understand themselves how to deal with an individual request without consulting a privacy specialist. And the way to you know embed that it's all about training. It's all about 
making sure everything is understandable and then training people on it regularly and often. And, and David, we, we hear a lot all the time about data protection officers and whether companies need to have data protection officers, who that should be, what they need to do, what level of experience they have. How do you think the DPO, DPO role should work? I don't think there's any doubt that it's a challenging job being a DPO. You have to be influential within the business. You have to get the privacy point of view across. But equally, you've got to be authoritative firm. You've got to be prepared to ring the alarm bells if you think things are going wrong with with compliance. Uh, And businesses, I think, are struggling a little bit with where you place the data protection officer. They're slightly arm's length from the business. Uh, They're not really the privacy management function, but they have to have a relationship with the privacy management function. It's worth remembering that not all businesses have to have a data protection officer. Uh, But if you are having one, there's recruitment questions. Do you go externally or internally? What we haven't seen much of so far, but I suspect will emerge, is external firms providing the data protection resource uh, to businesses. And of course, the data protection officer, like the business itself, needs to be accountable. The data protection officer needs to demonstrate that they're on top of compliance, that they're effective, and that they are, as I say, sort of ringing the alarm bells if they need to do so. And and Jane, another um, challenge that we hear about a lot is um, third-party contract remediation. So many many organisations have huge numbers of contracts which will need to be looked at. So how do you think it's best to approach dealing with this? It is a really challenging area. I can only agree with that. I think, again, prioritisation is important. Um, So if you are um, a customer, as it were, an organisation with a lot of data that you use a number of third-party vendors to help you process it, I would be picking off my biggest risk contracts those vendors that process a high volume of data or sensitive data and ensuring that I invest the time in really understanding um, how they're doing it and auditing their processes and looking at that in some detail. So not just looking at the Article 28.3 obligations that may need to be passed through, but actually examining those relationships thoroughly. Um, But then obviously one also needs to think about the programme more holistically and the range of other vendors that might be supporting you and ensuring that you roll out the Article 28.3 provisions to to others as well. And where we see this working well is when a company has got a good policy in place. Um, It's sort of developed guidance notes. It's got templates. So there's a degree of consistency across the various contracts that it's seeking to insert these provisions. And it's, you know, taking a view which is risk-based, again, going back to David's earlier point, that, uh, you know, really focuses on those points which are most important to risk to data subjects rather than necessarily perhaps commercial risks um, and, you know, sort of ensuring that those are addressed. So again, we have the theme of prioritisation yes. and trying to work out what to do first. Um, and Jane, for those organisations that have a very wide geographical coverage, so I'm not talking now about how many contracts they have, but they might be in many different countries with lots of different laws, how are they approaching programmes to make it make sense for the business as a whole? Well, I think that's a really interesting and quite challenging question yet again, actually. It um, doesn't really make sense to have a GDPR-compliant programme rolling out to your entire organisation if you know, a tiny proportion is in Europe and the balance is elsewhere. That said, you know, we do have clients who are rapidly growing in Europe, even though their heartland may be outside. 
and it's important for them to be putting in place um, policies and procedures that can grow and evolve with time and that are flexible so this can scale up and they've got all the foundations in place. Some organisations will find it makes sense to have consistent back office treatment of the data so that um, rather than trying to sort of nickel and dime compliance standards on things like, you know, privacy by design, privacy by default, etc. And, you know, only apply things to Europe, that just doesn't really work practically um, because the data is, you know, flowing cross borders all the time. Um, and accordingly, they may want to ensure that the back office is consistent, but they only offer sort of quite nuanced privacy rights to in their sort of notices um, to those data subjects that are actually entitled to them, rather than, say, to undertaking a big compliance obligation in respect of, for instance, countries where there are, those rights just don't exist at the moment. So I would be thinking about the various aspects of the GDPR and trying to work out whether or not it makes sense to apply them more broadly or it's simpler not to. And David, you agree with this? I do. I mean, yeah. I agree with Jane. I think she used the right word when she said consistent. You can try and be consistent worldwide, but trying to do everything identically worldwide, well, it's not going to serve the purpose of things like a privacy notice, which is about informing individuals. I mean, most businesses, if they operate in you know, 10 15 countries will actually have a different data controller in each country. Now, your privacy notice under the GDPR has to give the name and the contact details of the data controller. So you have to have some variation. Uh, but you can you can have consistent notices and you can have, you know, click here to find out who the data controller is. And depending where you're coming from, it may go to, to a, a different answer. With a bit of imagination, you can be consistent, uh, but not necessarily identical. I think, um, from my perspective, m many clients see GDPR being the trend uh, that other countries will follow. And so clients actually see it as an opportunity to get ahead by expanding some of, some of the aspects of GDPR to their businesses outside the EU. Uh, there's an opportunity there to be efficient. But of course, every business is resource constrained, so an obvious area where you can uh, slim down the program and actually achieve prioritization and mitigating high risks is to focus on the real GDPR scope, not on deploying policies and standards outside of that. But if you've got them sitting in the back office, as Jane said, then it's easy to roll out if those countries change their laws and introduce well, similar it, types of... It might even be necessary, actually, because so many businesses these days have central functions that support the business whether that be HR or legal or, you know, it could be, frankly, anything. If those central functions are unable in practice to distinguish between data that is subject to GDPR and data that is not, then as a practical matter, that means those central functions all have to apply, for the most part, GDPR standards. So it, it's just a practical reality that the effect of GDPR is perhaps far broader than, um, than many would first anticipate. Yeah, and data privacy is a bit of a moving target, isn't it? It's not all going to suddenly you know, stop on the 25th of May and nothing changes. We've got things like new e-privacy regulation on the way. So it's important to have an ongoing process and something that you, you can update frequently. And Nigel makes a great point, actually, um, in that when data gets transferred under things like the model clauses or BCRs, it's expected to be treated in the non-EU jurisdiction to the same standards as it would be in Europe. So accordingly, all of those standards do get exported as well as the data. 
And that's, that's important for us all to remember. So David, turning now to enforcement, what do you think will be the impact of the potentially much higher penalties uh, for a much wider range of infringements under the GDPR? How do you think enforcement's going to work? Well, I suppose it's already worked in many ways because the reason so many businesses are giving the attention they are to, to GDPR programmes is because of the headline fines which, which are available. Having said that, I don't really see a rush by regulators to impose these you know, 4% of turnover within a matter of weeks. Indeed, I'm sure they won't do because every, behind every fine has to be a proper investigation, a proper process. Uh, and again, if you look at the, the UK, the Information Commissioner has said she's not going to fundamentally change her approach to enforcement. She's still going to concentrate on you know, the most serious breaches where there's repeated offences, uh, deliberate and negligent uh, uh, conduct. So it's still going to be proportionate. The fines are serious, you, you know, take them as a message, but remember it's not all about fines either. Uh, the regulators, all data protection authorities, have powers to do something like stop processing, stopping international transfers. Actually, those could have a, a, a significant impact on, on, on business. But even with the high fines, probably for many businesses, you know, the risk is still around reputation, customer trust, you know, bad publicity if they get thing, things wrong. Uh, it's not just fines. It, it's looking after the business requires you to, to look after people's information properly under the GDPR. And Jane, we've been seeing a, a sort of new thing in group actions by you know, recently employees. Um, do you think this is something that we'll see growing or, or do you think that this is a sort of one-off um, I think that's a very good point. I do think that we'll see more of that, um, potentially. A um, couple of reasons. One is um, a case that we had a few years ago which moved to change the law in relation to recovery of loss and allows people now to recover loss for non-material as well as material damage, which has been carried through, of course, into the GDPR. So one doesn't have to have a financial loss to be able to recover um, loss in terms of distress. And that, I think, may indeed encourage more claims to be made. Plus, the GDPR also makes it easier for um, claims to be marshaled um, by not-for-profit type organisations. So in the Morrison's case, which um, I'm sure we've all been uh, sort of following avidly, I think is probably an early indicator of the type of actions that we can probably see. And Nigel, bearing, the, uh, bearing in mind the attention the GDPR is receiving and the fines we've been talking about and this possibility of um, group actions um, and the large number of grey areas within the legislation. How useful are businesses finding the guidance that we're seeing starting to come out of the Article 29 Working Party and the, the regulators in the different member states? I think it's probably fair to say most clients have, like us, mixed feelings about the guidance that's emerging. Uh, on the one hand, there is a tremendous clamour for it. Businesses want certainty. Uh, they want those gaps that exist in GDPR to be filled in so they can develop implementable certain processes. But at the same time, it's incredibly challenging to run a GDPR programme within an organisation in an environment where the goalposts are constantly shifting where 
new guidance comes out and it requires redesign, redesign of what the company is already in the process of implementing and training people on. Um, so it's a, it's a tremendous challenge. Uh, I don't think it will go away in May either. I think it's going to be with us for years to come uh, and, and unfortunately is, is, is a reality that just has to be faced. Yeah, there's a little bit of sort of beware of what you wish for with the guidance, uh, I think. You know, the Article 29 Working Party has actually done a wonderful job in producing a huge amount of, uh, of guidance. I'm not sure it really meets its own tests of being you know, concise, transparent, intelligible and, uh, uh, and so forth. It's pretty hard going. Uh, and you know, the ICO, the CNIL in France, other regulators have started work on producing perhaps more practical versions uh, of that. But I, you know, I've been on the Article 29 working party. I know how it works. Uh, they always tend to go to, I suppose, what you might call the highest common denominator. If you can stretch the law, you know, we'll stretch it as far as we can. And I, I think arguably in a few cases, even beyond where, where the law goes. So it is worth bearing in mind that, that this is only guidance. You know, the GDPR is what the law is. Uh, you don't have to follow it every letter of it completely. Uh, yes, you need to take care, uh, but you can apply the same sort of risk-based decision-making process to how far you comply with the guidance, uh, as well as to, to how you address other aspects of your, your privacy programme. I think where it is quite helpful is to be informative of the likely regulatory response on particular issues, given the new consistency mechanism that there will be and accordingly, whereas previously um, the Article 29 guidance perhaps didn't, you know, sort of influence each individual authority to quite the same extent, I think going forward that will be a change because there will be that concern to drive harmonisation to some extent, particularly in cases where there's sort of cross-border processing of data and so forth. So in a sense, although it's challenging and difficult to comply with, as Nigel says, it's also really useful as an insight into, um, you know, David's point about it being the highest common denominator and what is the worst that, you know, I could be expected to do. And you can sort of benchmark from there. I think another good piece of advice um, for anyone running a data protection program would be to carefully manage their stakeholders in terms of this position to make them aware that, it's hard to give 100% certainty on things. And it is a, an evolving environment where the guidance is still coming out and market practice is very much in its early stages develop, of developing. Um, and so just, just be cautious not to kind of oversell to management and other stakeholders um, the, the, the position. Make sure they're aware that, that these challenges exist and that the program the function may need to be evolve um, as, as indeed it will you know for as long as the GDPR exists. That's a great point Nigel. So we've, we've heard from uh, my colleagues um, that while you don't need to panic about the impending 25th of May deadline you should already be taking steps to ensure compliance with a plan which prioritizes all the key risks. Um, the model is going to need to be matured and we've heard some ways to think about doing that. Um, clearly, there are consequences for failure to comply, but it sounds like um, those who have the most to fear are those who have neglected or ignored their responsibilities rather than those who are striving hard to get it right. So many thanks to Jane, Nigel and David for sharing their views with us, and thank you also for your time in listening to our Alan Novery podcast. Mm -hmm.